Nervous Fluid, Chapter 2, The Select Society Lorne Bonbados looked out the window of his horse-drawn carriage and watched House Monbado disappear in the distance. He then set his attention on an, on an as-yet-unpublished manuscript of his own that sat in his lap. He dared not bring an inkpot for fear of spilling on the bumpy road to Mr. Hutton's house, and instead made hasty notes in the margins with only the tip of his damp quill. He was born James Burnett and was prepared for a long journey. The journey thus far had brought him fame and fortune as a Scottish barrister. He had won the most high-profile case in all of Great Britain. A wealthy widow's estate was challenged on the grounds of questionable maternity. It made national headlines because both the births supposedly occurred in France, so there was an international appeal to it. Mr. James Burnett appropriated the title Lord Monbado once he was elected to be a judge in the High Court, although he never had any official claim to Scottish nobility. The carriage slowed and Monbado disembarked. He let the driver know his visit to Mr. Hutton would be short and they would continue their journey after lunch. Mr. Hutton was rarely in his home as he frequently visited the countryside to perform his research. Today, Monbado found him at a table in his carriage house. Mr. Hutton was Great Britain's foremost expert on rocks and dirt, and his carriage house was full of both. He was hunched over his table, peering at a handful of dirt, and didn't seem to hear or notice his friend's arrival. You requested me, kind sir, Monbado said to alert Mr. Hutton to his presence. Ah, yes, thank you for stopping by. I was just comparing this clay. He trailed off and looked around a jar, around for a jar to dispose of it. Always in the dirt, aren't you? I'm afraid so, James replied, as he emptied the contents out of his hand and turned to his friend. I would shake your hand, but no need, Monbato said, and held his hand up. I have dinner prepared. We can talk more inside. Mr. Hutton's house was sparse, but one of his servants made a nice meal for the two as they sat and discussed their respective interests. Is your manuscript on languages finished? Mr. Hutton asked his colleague. Not as yet. I'm on my way to study the Tahitian language. I have an official invitation from the Royal Society in London to conduct an inquiry on an aborigine that a slave ship from the Philippines brought in. It appears our mutual friend, Mr. Hume, has been promoting my interests during his stay in London and arranged this visit for me. He's a useful chap to have around. I rather like his acting. You best get to it, though. You have the rest of us waiting with bated breath for your magnum opus. Well, that is rather hypocritical of you to say, Monbato retorted. Ha! I guess so. But when you are writing a book about the origins of the earth itself, time is a small consequence. Time is rather the issue. I must make haste to London. Pray tell the reason for this social call. Ah, yes. I was on a visit to the Midlands on some agricultural business, and I received an invitation from the estate of William Stukeley to peruse some of his scientific interests. 
He recently passed on, and they wanted his notes to go to someone who might appreciate it. On the whole, not very interesting stuff from my point of view, except for one item which I'd like you to have. A gift? Yes, a gift. Seems like that a local landowner by the name of Robert Darwin found a very interesting rock that made its way to the Royal Society in London. Embedded in the rock itself was the skeleton of a rather enormous creature that no one could identify. In any event, thus, James got up and rummaged through a cabinet and produced a rock, the shard, the size of a man's forearm, was a part of it. He continued. The rock shard was of a plain sort, but the bones of the creature were clearly evident on its face. If the rest of it was as enormous, the bones of this shard would most likely have represented its extremities as there were numerous joints. A pretty picture. I shall put it on my mantle, exclaimed Monbato. I'm glad you like it. It's the least I could give after all the contractual advice you've given me. A high honor from the second most curious man in Edinburgh. Now, if you would excuse me, I must make haste, my friend. Monbato picked up his gift and Mr. Hutton walked him to the door. Safe travels, Mr. Hutton called after him as Monbato entered his carriage. Monbato sat the rock shard on the seat in front of him and stared at it while his driver took off. A fine doorstop, he said to himself. When Monbato arrived in London five days later, went straight to the Royal Society's offices on Fleet Street. The Tahitian was there, and he went straight to work. For four hours straight, there was a constant stream of communication between the two men, though neither could understand the other's language. Monbato had honed his craft of extracting the relevant linguistic information from his subjects. In front of him, he kept a piece of paper and recorded tally marks when his subjects spoke. The secretary of the office was most intrigued and watched most of the exchange. What is it you're doing there with the paper? I'm counting the number of syllables per word. In my estimation, more advanced civilizations have more syllables per word. Through my work, I have identified that all humans come from a common ancestor in Africa. Africa? Correct the orangutan, specifically. At that, the secretary just shook his head and started to walk out of the room. Before you leave, could you tell me where Mr. Hume is staying? Across the street, second floor. Mad Scots. The secretary trailed off as he left the room. After he finished with the Tahitian for the day, Monbato found Mr. Hume's temporary residence easy enough and knocked on the door. Come in, someone said from inside. Monbato pushed open the door to reveal a man seated at a table next to the fireplace. My good Monbato, please take a seat, David said, and gestured to the other seat at his table. Mr. Hume, as it has been too long, Monbato said as he eased into Mr. Hume's chair. 
too long indeed have our friends in the select society missed me too much. They miss your acting quite naturally. The cannon gate isn't the same without you. And Adam, has he kept occupied without me to harangue him? Well, he has his invisible hand to keep him occupied, Monbato retorted, and they both laughed for a good long while. When he settled down, Monbato motioned to the stack of letters on the table. What is this business? It is Rousseau's mail, Hume said, as he took an open letter and threw it in the fire. What are you doing with it, and why are you opening his letters? He asked me to. I'm afraid he's quite mad, actually. My previous estimation of him was way off, Hume said, as he took another letter off the top of the pile and opened it. So it is true. You only came back from France with him at the request of some noble temptress, Monbato exclaimed, and leaned over the table. I will not have you speak ill of Milady in my presence, Hume said flatly as he read a letter. Ah, this one is from your esteemed colleague, Lord Carnes, inviting Mr. Rousseau to his estate. Monbato wordlessly pointed to the fire. Hume smiled as he complied with his friend's wish.